Well, please remain standing and turn with me, if you will, to Jeremiah chapter 51. We're going to read, so we're going to start our time in God's Word by reading chapter 15, uh, verses 10 through 18. Jeremiah 15, verses 10 through 18. Beloved saints, this is God's word to us this morning. Let us give our attention to the reading of it. Woe is me, my mother, that you bore me, a man of strife and contention to the whole land. I have not lent, nor have I borrowed, yet yet all of them curse me. The Lord said, Have I not set you free for their good? Have I not pleaded for you before the enemy in the time of trouble and in the time of distress? Can one break iron, iron of the north and bronze? Your wealth and your treasure I will give as spoil without price for all your sins throughout all your territory. I will make you serve your enemies in a land that you do not know. For in fire, I'm sorry, for in my anger a fire is kindled that shall burn forever. O Lord, you know, remember me and visit me, and take vengeance on all my persecutors. In your forbearance, take me not away. Know that for your sake I bear reproach. Your words were found, and I ate them. Your words became to me a joy and a delight of my heart. For I am called by your name, O Lord God of hosts. I did not sit in the company of revelers, nor did I rejoice. I sat alone because your hand was upon me, for you had filled me with indignation. Why is my pain unceasing, my wound incurable, refusing to be healed? Will you be to me like a deceitful brook, like waters that fail? Since the reading of God's word at this time, let us ask that the Lord would meet us in his word and speak to us through it. Our great God of truth, we confess that we are prone to believe lies that are not your word. We have easily been swayed and led astray. The simple reality is that we give ear to voices that we ought not. We believe things that are simply not true. Or still, we often believe things that you have clearly denied. We believe that you are limited by our strength, you are constrained by our sin, that our weakness is greater than your mercy. And yet, as we now turn to your word, we ask that you would root out these lies, destroy all impostors of the truth, renew our minds in the knowledge of Christ. All of this we ask in his name, for he is the way, the truth, and the life. And so we come to him, to you through him, we pray in his name. Amen. You may be seated. Another monk in his order once said to Martin Luther, Brother Luther, I see how you spend your hours reading and praying and confessing. You must really love God. I see by your grin, some of you know this story. Luther said, love God. Sometimes I hate God. You see, those hours of reading and prayer 
and confession were not for Luther at that point in his life, times of refreshment, drinking from the waters of life. They were exhausting wrestling matches where he was trying to find some way to find and feel and experience peace, some assurance that God was no longer angry at him. He said, if I could be sure of that, I would stand on my head in joy. But of course, Luther is not unique. Many have struggled to find that peace that he saw, at least consistently. Many have failed to understand God's ways, his reasons, and his plans. They have grown weary. And eventually they struggled to know, to believe that God loves them. And whether they love God or hate him. Jeremiah has one such episode in our passage today. Uh, Last week, God told Jeremiah as he grew tired, as tired as he was, that things were about to get a whole lot worse. And they have. Uh, As we come uh, to our passage, uh, famine is upon the land. and, And Jeremiah lashes out. He questions God and he blames God. And in a strange way, this is a comfort to us. Because we know what it is to grow weary. We know what it is to question God. And we know what it is to lash out. But the true comfort of our passage is not in discovering who Jeremiah is and that he's a lot like us. The true comfort comes in finding out what God is like. That is the true source of comfort. And so as we look at this passage this morning, what we want to see is this. God is a patient and merciful God who only enters into judgment as a last resort and bears with our wickedness and indeed our foolishness. That's what we're going to see uh, in our passage uh, this morning. The crisis in our passage has a backstory, as crises always do. Uh, You remember Jeremiah was called to be a prophet in one of Israel's darkest periods. Uh, Centuries of mounting rebellion and sin had led to a breaking point. The ten tribes in the north, commonly referred to as Israel, uh, had already been rejected and led away into captivity in Assyria. And the two remaining tribes in the south, referred to as Judah, are not far behind. As far as rebellion goes, uh, they were just slower than the ten northern tribes, but not different. The depth of their sin showed itself when a king named Manasseh offered his own children to foreign gods. And the people did nothing. They went along with it. And so they shared in his guilt The people have been pushing God away. They're they're looking to foreign gods for help and for comfort. They liked the promises of the foreign gods, the comforts and the blessings that they made. And so they didn't listen to God's word. They did not seek God for help. They did not bow down to him as king. They surrounded themselves with false prophets who promised that no harm would come. And so they created a false world where they 
found false promises, followed false gods, and found false comfort. But the thing with lies is that they always fail. They never succeed. They can't because they're lies. And lies always butt up against reality sooner or later. And so as chapter 14 opens, famine is consuming the land. God has removed his hand of protection, his hand of provision. He stops sending the rains. He's given them over to their false gods and given their false gods an opportunity to provide for, for the people. But the problem is their clouds are as empty as their promises. And so the land dries up. Even the animals have turned on their young and start to devour them for lack of water. And then the words come that we've, we've longed to hear. In chapter 14, verse 7, uh, the people finally cry out. They say, Though our iniquities testify against us, act, O Lord, for your name's sake, for our backslidings are many. We have sinned against you. And we think, there it is. This is what we've been waiting for. This is what God's been telling them to do. The long-awaited repentance is here. We think we've reached that critical point of breaking and then of healing. That's verse 7. And then we read verses 8 and 9. And they say, O you, hope of Israel, its Savior in time of trouble, why should you be like a stranger in the land, like a traveler who turns aside to tarry for a night? Why should you be like a man confused, like a mighty warrior who cannot save. Yet you, O Lord, are in the midst of us, and we are called by your name. Do not leave us. Now to be sure, there are some words that sound pious here, like, O hope of Israel. But then they start saying things like, why should you be like a confused warrior who cannot save? It's as if they're saying, God, don't you love saving people? Isn't that what you do? So, you know, do that. Don't you need to be needed to feel like the mighty conqueror? What's stopping you? These words of repentance are weary words. Now, that might not be the most obvious uh, description or language to use, but I use it for a reason. Weariness is a repeating theme in Jeremiah in our passage. The people are weary. Jeremiah is weary. And chapter 15 even says God is weary. But weary in what sense? We know from Isaiah that God does not grow tired like us. He never runs out of energy and just says, time out everyone, I'm just going to take a quick cat nap and I'll be ready to go in 15 minutes. Weary can mean other things than growing tired. To be weary of something is to be cautious, unfavorable, reluctant, to see it as a last resort. And that's really what the repentance in chapter 14 among the people of Israel is. It's a last resort. They have had opportunity after opportunity, but chosen not to. It's only when their land is withering in drought that they finally say, fine, okay, we'll give repentance a try. 
but you can't try repentance like it's an alternate shampoo that you'll see how it works for the week. You either are repentant or you're not repentant. Telling God that if he doesn't rescue them, he's like a confused, that is a worthless warrior, is not repentance. And so their words are forced, filled with resentment, with reluctance. They are a last and an unwanted resort. They are weary words. They don't want to repent. They're weary to do so, reluctant. And so God rejects the repentance as the farce it is. He tells Jeremiah not to intercede. And then finally he says, Though they fast, I will not hear their cry. And though they offer burnt offering and grain offering, I will not accept them. But I will consume them by sword, by famine, and by pestilence. God has been calling for repentance since the book began, but it has been calling for true repentance, not a charade. We might be fooled by words, we might be shamed by subtle attacks, but God is not. And there is no standing before God in pride. He sees through the games, he sees through the charades, and he rejects those who say, fine, I'll give God a try for a day or two and see what he can do. He says, watch me do nothing. But the people aren't the only ones who find themselves uh, in a difficult situation. Jeremiah is finding his whole calling as a prophet difficult, wearying. Remember we saw that language last week in chapter 12. God said, if you have raced with men on foot and they have wearied you, how will you compete with horses? As Jeremiah looks at the personal cost that he has incurred and will continue to incur for being a prophet, he wants to give up. But that's not the extent of his difficulty. He's struggling with God's decision to reject this false repentance of the people. Despite his anger toward them, and he has that, he also identifies with the people and sees himself as one of them. And he doesn't want to see judgment come. And so despite God's command not to intercede, Jeremiah just can't help himself. And he jumps in and he tries to get God to change his mind. But rather than saying, Oh God, please have mercy, Jeremiah tries to argue that they are not really to blame. It's not their fault. He says, Lord God, behold, the prophets say to them, you shall not see the sword, you shall not have famine, but I will give you assured peace in this place. Chapter 14, verse 13. Jeremiah is saying, the people just follow the prophets. And then he tries to salvage the repentance of the people. He says, We looked for peace, but no good came for a time of healing, but behold, terror. We acknowledged our wickedness and the iniquities of our fathers, for we have sinned against you. Do not dishonor your glorious throne. Are there any among the false gods of the nations that can bring rain? 
Or can the heavens give showers? Are you not he, O Lord, our God? We set our hope on you, for you do all things. Jeremiah is saying, look, they repented. They, they looked to you for help. Now, perhaps we know that this is folly. It's easy to see in others, but how often do we cringe when others make such speeches only to turn and make them ourselves when time gets hard? How many terrible things have you uttered to God when you're scared? How many times have you tried to blame others for your failures? How many times have you tried to back God into a corner that just isn't there? And God's response is exactly what we we expect. He says, I didn't send those prophets. Don't blame me for what they said. See, we have a tendency, all of us, to surround ourselves with people who tell us what we want to hear. We ask questions that only allow one answer. We punish people for speaking uncomfortable truths. We cast off faithful friends in exchange for people who don't challenge our sin. And then, when everything goes sideways, what do we say? Why didn't anyone warn me? The false prophets were guilty to be sure, but the people who allowed them to go unchallenged, those who rewarded the peddlers of lies, were they not equally to blame? God has made it so that we know His truth. He's put it in our hearts. We recognize it. We can spot lies. And we're not off the hook simply because someone else spoke them. We're responsible if we believe them. And so God says, as chapter 15 opens, if Moses or Samuel came and interceded, I would not listen. The people have sought freedom from God and he will give them the freedom they sought because his judgment is fitting to their sin. Often the greatest punishment God can ever inflict is to give us exactly what we ask for. They rejected him. They asked him to leave them alone and now he's going to do exactly that. And it's more than Jeremiah is willing to accept And so in the passage we read as we open, chapter 15, verses 10 through 18, he goes from interceding on behalf of the people to an all-out complaint against God. He laments the day he was born, which must be read in light of chapter 1, which says you were born to be a prophet. He claims blamelessness. He says he's done all that God asked him to do. And he wonders why. What was it all for? The people have not been saved. Judgment has still come. Nothing has changed. Jeremiah has suffered for years because of his calling as a prophet and he's accomplished nothing and he's not okay with it. He's angry. No longer angry at the people like we saw last week. Now he's angry at God. 
In verse 18, he can hold back no longer. He says, why is my pain unceasing, my wound incurable, refusing to be healed? Will you be to me like a deceitful brook, like waters that fail? He's saying, God, why does my pain only increase the longer I serve you? Why do things just keep getting harder? Things keep getting worse. What's the point? I once believed you were fresh flowing waters, but now you appear to be nothing better than a deceitful brook. And you can hear the indignation. He believes that God was always going to judge the people, that he never really wanted repentance, that he actually is taking pleasure in bringing judgment. If the people were weary to repent, Jeremiah is weary to surrender. He's reluctant, unwilling. Before he relents, he demands that God make him understand. And if he can't understand, if he can't agree with God, then he will not accept it. Now, if you're wondering why you're starting to feel a little uncomfortable... It's because these words have been frequent visitors to your inner thoughts. There's only one thing more uncomfortable than seeing someone foolishly accuse God of injustice. It's hearing yourself in those words. And yet there's a strange comfort at the same time, isn't there? I don't know about you, But when I see someone like Moses or David, Peter or Jeremiah blow it, I think, oh good, I'm not alone. Because I know God loves them. I know he overlooked their arrogance. I know he forgave them. And then I take comfort that I'm not alone in my weariness to surrender. I'm not the only one who struggles with it. There is hope. But ultimately, hope is not found in the failures of others. Wouldn't that be strange? Hope is found in the loving faithfulness of God. In chapter 15, verse 5, God says, Who will have pity on you, O Jerusalem? Or who will grieve for you? Who will turn aside to ask about your welfare? Now, if we're not careful, we're going to miss this. We might think that God is saying, good riddance. But I think there's an implied answer to each of these questions. God is saying, why reject me? Who will have pity on you as I have had pity on you? Who will grieve over you as I have? Grieve over you. Who will worry about your welfare as I have? Israel, who has loved you as I love you? God is not rejecting them. They have rejected him and his offer of love. When the God of Israel who spoke to Israel through Jeremiah, when he came into this world and became man, he would repeat these words, essentially. Just before Jesus was betrayed and crucified, do you remember what he prayed? 
O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. Those aren't words of vindictiveness. They are words of compassion. They are words of love. And that helps us understand what it means in chapter 15, verse 6, when it says, God is weary of relenting. In chapter 15, verse 6, he says this, You have rejected me. You keep going backward. So I have rejected, I'm sorry, so I have stretched out my hand against you and destroyed you. I am weary of relenting. Now we could read these words as God is tired of showing kindness. But that just doesn't fit with who God is, who he tells us he is. God never tires of showing kindness. God is love, and he never tires of being love. Or we could read it that God is weary. He is reluctant to change course, to relent on showing patience. He is weary to show judgment that he takes no delight in it. And I think that does fit with who God is. He tells us that he is slow to anger, but abounding in steadfast love. He tells us he takes no pleasure in the destruction or the judgment of the wicked. I think what God is saying is that he is, that as weary as they are to repent, as weary as Jeremiah is to surrender, he is weary to enter into judgment. He would much rather show mercy. He would rather care for them. He would rather have a relationship of mutual love and devotion. But if they are dead set on walking away, if they are committed to experiencing life without him, if they are unyielding in their fascination with false gods, false prophets, and the lies they tell, then he will relent. He will let them go, but he will take no pleasure in it. But even then, it's not too late. Let's read the final few verses, chapter 15, verses 19 through 21. Therefore, thus says the Lord, if you turn, I will restore you, and you shall stand before me. If you utter what is precious and not what is worthless, you shall be as my mouth. They shall turn to you, but you shall not turn to them. And I will make you to this people a fortified wall of bronze, and they will fight against you, but they shall not prevail over you. For I am with you to save you and deliver you, declares the Lord. And I will deliver you out of the hand of the wicked, and redeem you from the grasp of the ruthless. Even after the people have rejected God and gone their own way, even after they have tried to blame God for their failures, even after Jeremiah was pulled in and tried to justify the people and find fault with God, even after he refused to surrender and trust that God is good, even if he doesn't understand what God is doing, even then God says... If you return, I will restore you and you will stand before me. And those aren't just words for Jeremiah. He's identified with the people. He's even pleaded their case. He's sided with them against God. He has uttered worthless words to the God of truth 
And the offer of hope for true repentance isn't just for him. It's for any who would repent. Any who would turn. And so the hope, the the expectation is, is that when God takes away his protective hand and they see what they're left with, they will see the emptiness of their desires and they will return to him, not in pretense, not, not in emptiness, but in substance, in truth, with true repentance, not with attempts to control or manipulate or shame God into doing their will, but in real, true, and humble repentance. The kind that doesn't say, God, isn't this your fault? But the kind that says, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. This is the hope that drove God to turn his own people over to judgment. He was weary to do so, but not unwilling, because he's willing to do what is hard and painful to accomplish that which is good and beautiful. And that's most clearly seen in his willingness to enter into judgment himself for his people. Shortly after Jesus lamented over Jerusalem, he went away and prayed in the solitude of a garden. You remember what he prayed? He knew what lay before him. He knew that the only way to save those he loved was not to judge them, but to be judged for them and to take their place. He knew that the only road to salvation was painful. And he was slow to walk down that road. He was weary to enter into judgment. He prayed, Father, if there's any way that you are willing, remove this cup from me. But he had a resolve, the likes of which we struggle to understand, let alone exhibit. And so he followed up that prayer with, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. And so he entered into judgment. He endured all that we deserve so that we would not need to. What he requires of us is true repentance. The kind his people in in chapter 14 were unwilling to give. He calls for surrender, even when we don't understand or agree with him. And he promises for those who repent and surrender that he will restore them. He will own them. And he will bear their judgment in their place. He referred to that judgment that he entered into as a cup. It was like the father was holding out a a cup of wrath that had to be poured out. He didn't want it, but he was willing to take it because it was the only way. And that's why he left us a cup and bread to remind us the price that he was willing to pay to save us, to remind us the only way to find true comfort, to remind us of his love and his compassion toward us. See, Martin Luther struggled to find confidence in God's love when Martin Luther looked to how good he was. 
It's only when you look to how good Jesus is that you find that comfort and that peace. And so as we come, we confess that we are sinners like Israelites, like the Israelites. We confess that we are hot-headed like Jeremiah. But we also confess that we are loved by God. I'd like to ask the elders and Pastor Brian to come up as we receive the Lord's Supper. Please bow with me in prayer. Father, we are all weary, reluctant, resistant to something. For us, it's humility, repentance, and surrender. But for you, it is judgment. Oh, that we were more like you. Help us to turn quickly from sin with humble repentance, to turn quickly to surrender with humble confidence that you know best, and to turn always to your compassionate love and forgiveness, knowing that there is hope nowhere else. All of these things we ask through Jesus, who came and was willing to suffer for our sakes. Amen.